I mean, I've been out, I've been out of the game. You have been out of the game. You almost got kicked off the show. I almost had to hand in my gun, my badge, and my motorcycle. Like my entire motorcycle. Just, <laughs> just give it over to you. Carry it into my office. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my motorcycle, boss. I wouldn't even carry the whole thing. It'd be like piece by piece. We like didn't little... even give you a motorcycle. This is just yours. Then how did I get a company, Gems of History Company credit card? <laughs> so you bought this with the company <laughs> so, card. So, yes. <laughs> Can you understand why you're getting fired, sir? I'm trying to live a certain lifestyle for the brand. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm the bad boy of, pod, we are of the, history podcasting. We are the Gemstones biker gang. And our, our like biker leather is just all bedazzled and uh, pretty rubies. Yes, yes, definitely. And then it's got like JFK's face on it. <laughs> well, now I know what your birthday gift is. Yeah, I will wear that everywhere if you get me that. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. I am Jacob Shop, and joining me back from the dead is Evan Roosh. Back from the dead, spooky season. I got the old Covey Wovey. So. Covey Wovey. That is a new one. I've never heard COVID 19, one of the. <laughs> biggest disasters of our timeline right referred to as covey wovey took away a solid what year year and a half year and a half realistically like of our lives and no it's just a little baby disease just kidding it's very serious so it didn't mean if anyone there but you know i conquered it i put it in its place you got to i mean when it approaches the only other options when dying, it approaches so. you on the battlefield <laughs> yeah. you have to be prepared can you imagine this big bad germ coming up and no, it's just a little Kobe wovey <laughs> Just like this little dog. But I'm glad you're doing better. I'm glad you aren't continuing your suffering because that would be bad. And then Same. we would have to get Mark back and then Mark would replace you officially and uh, it would have been a whole thing. It's just a never ending like never ending rotation between Mark and I. Yeah. <laughs> Switch. Like he'll do like ten episodes, then I'll be like, No, now I'm back filling in for Mark Steinbrenner, who was filling in for Evan Roosh, who was filling in for Mark Steinbrenner. I'm just gonna and like so sit so back and watch you guys do cage death matches to see who is the host for the week. We won't even talk about history anymore. It'll just nope. be audio of us <laughs> we'll scuffling. Just, we'll be on Twitch forever, just watching you guys fight. Right. But as Evan mentioned, it is spooky season and we're back with another spooky episode today. Woo. Yes. I do have to say loved your guys' stories last week. The unsolved murders, they just, they hit different, you know, especially during this time of year. It was very interesting actually having the uh, perspective of like a listener listener. Yeah. And then just getting so mad at you for picking two stories that we just don't know. Yep. Uh, I was just waiting for you to just do like, and by the way, it was blank. I guess what? I have another one this week, so. Fantastic. (laughs) You get to watch, you guys get to listen to me react to it live. Yep. But yeah, we're going to do a couple stories today. Evan and I both both brought our own little stories to talk to you guys about for the spooky season. So scary. But Evan, would you like to go first in telling your story for our episode today? I would. Very excited to get into this one. It's actually a, as you may guess from the title, it's actually a possession story. But it's a possession story that happened in 2014. Or excuse me, 2012, and was the story was published in 2014. So pretty recent. Pretty recent. I thought it was extremely interesting because whenever you hear the word exorcism, it's like 
it you've never heard of one happening in like the 2000s yeah it's always forward. like 1980s or something like that right 1980s and all the footage is just grainy and yeah. all the people are just dead already right but this is about the possession and subsequent exorcism of latoya amons and the amons family so latoya amons who was a uh, african-american woman living in gary indiana uh. And her, I am sorry. Yeah, that's the spookiest <laughs> that, that part. That is the scariest part of the story. The, was it? I just drove through Gary, Indiana like a week ago, and man, that is scary. One of the funniest things that you can do for yourself is listen. It's a song called I Want to Go to Gary, Indiana, or Gary, Indiana. It was made in like early 1900s when Gary, Indiana was actually pop, lock, and dropping. Like, actually a Boston city. And now it's the butthole of America. And now it's the worst city. <laughs> so listen to that song, and then think about Gary, Indiana today. <laughs> it is quite How funny. times have changed. How That's a gem of history. <laughs> yeah, that honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. But uh, Latoya Amons and her three children uh, all claimed to be possessed by demons. And this story even includes... A nine-year-old boy walking backwards up a wall in the presence of a family case manager. So the the, the Department of Child Child Services, Children's Services. Yeah. And a hospital nurse. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Gary Police Captain Charles Austin was quoted saying that this was the strangest story he had ever heard. I would hope so. You do not run if into If you a have a story these. stranger than a nine-year-old walking backwards <clears throat> up a wall, I'm going to question what you're doing in your daily life. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, Gary, like, he was the uh, police captain, and as a 36-year-old veteran of the Gary Police Department, Gary, Indiana Police Department, he said that initially he believed that Latoya Amons and her family were just, you know, making up the story as a way to make money, to get attention, publicity. But after he visited several visits to their home and conducted interviews with the family and witnesses, he simply said, I am a believer. Ooh. Meaning that he was very skeptical. Man, I saw, I, you know, I saw a weird frog, real looking, really weird looking frog one time, and I got... I gotta tell you, this family case is a little more strange than that. I said, I said, is that a woman walking on the wall? <laughs> I really saw something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love it. But regardless of what was causing the creepy occurrences that uh, befell the family, <clears throat> whether it was delusion or demonic possession, it led to one of the most Bizarre cases ever handled by both the Department of Child Services and the Gary, Indiana Police Department. And many of the events are detailed in nearly 800 pages of official records, both from the Indianapolis Star, which is where the story comes from, where this main source comes from. And it's recounted in dozens of interviews with police, DCS personnel, so again, Department of Child Services, I'll be referring to them as DCS going forward, uh, psychologists, family members, and the Catholic Church. So really the, all the major players in typical exorcism scenarios are present at this point. It one. is always interesting to me when we get stories like this that have police reports where police are on file saying that something weird was going on, because like uh, the uh, Enfield 
poltergeist that we covered. Right. The police are on record saying that's like the chair slid across the floor and stuff. So mm-hmm. anytime the police are on file, it does kind of give it a little more air of credibility. Oh, 100%. I mean, getting that, like this many outside sources and witnesses to, again, some like a nine year old boy walking backwards up a wall. Yeah. Pretty intense. There's never time to clean the ceiling during the day. <laughs> Do it while you're possessed. <laughs> Introducing the Possessatron. So the story starts in November of 2011, where the Amons family moved into a rental house on Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. Carolina Street was a quiet street filled with small one-story homes. However, one day at the Amons family residence, Huge black flies suddenly swarmed their screened-in porch in December, despite the winter already taking place. So these huge flies are basically making nests in their front door in the middle of December. A screen door, mind you, so it's still very much cold outside. Big exorcist vibes. Huge exorcist vibes. Okay, so... Weird question. I have this card game called Buzzed. It's like a drinking game. And one of the questions that was on one of the cards... It was like, everyone has to choose between these two options and the losing team has to drink. And the options were being able to walk on rainbows or being able to communicate with flies. Which one would you choose? Rainbows, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what I said, too. What, what, what would a fly be able to tell me that? I, I don't know. He's like, dude, only, do you know there's poop here? <laughs> the only thing I could think of is like, if I could befriend a fly and then have him do reconnaissance missions for me. <laughs> that would make for a killer like heist movie. But then it's just the bee movie with a fly. Yeah, I don't want the bee to, or the fly to steal my wife. So. You don't want Jerry Seinfeld to ask you if you like jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Except the fly would be like, you like metalcore? <laughs> <laughs> Not my wife. Latoya Amon's mother, uh, when asked about the fly situation, uh, actually was quoted saying, we killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. There are other strange happenings at the beginning of our story. For instance, one night after midnight, Rosa Campbell, who again is Latoya Amon's mother uh, and Amon's herself, both said that they would occasionally hear the steady clump of footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak of the door opening between the basement and the kitchen. However, no one was ever there. Even after they locked the door, the noise continued, and Campbell said that she awoke one night and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing in the living room. She leaped out of her bed to investigate and found large, wet boot prints. What was she that a from? single mother? <laughs> no, sorry. So, well, yes, she was, but she was at the time living with uh, her mother. Okay. So we have... The two adults in this situation are Latoya Amons, who is the mother of the three children. The three children, uh, due to them being minors, are not mentioned in the story at yeah. all, their names. And then Rosa Campbell, who is Latoya Amons' mother. So we have a grandma so and no a mother. So no father present. No father present. All right, correct. That is correct. Still getting cigarettes. Still getting cigarettes and milk. It wasn't until March 10th of 2012, however, that the family's unease would turn to complete and utter fear. It was about 2 a.m. on this March night, and normally Campbell, Amons, and her children would have been asleep, 
but they were mourning the death of a loved one with a group of friends. So there's roughly eight people in the house at this point. Amons, who was in her mother's bedroom, startled everyone by screaming, Mama! Mama! Campbell said that she ran into her bedroom, where her then 12-year-old granddaughter and a friend were playing. Amons and Campbell said the 12-year-old was levitating above the bed, unconscious. Uh, yeah. Going on about the account of the events, Amons and everyone who is currently at the house gathered around the girl and started ferociously praying. Campbell herself says that she was utterly terrified and kept on asking, what's going on? Why is this happening? You know, the normal words that you usually... They weren't, usually they weren't like saying that this is like the uh, the party entertainment for the night. <laughs> they walk in like freaking again. She's a magician now. Yeah. <laughs> David Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, Campbell said that her granddaughter descended back onto the bed and woke up with no memory of what had happened. Campbell and Amon said that the people, family members who were visiting that night, refused to ever see them again. This This has got to be rough from... Like, Latoya's perspective, like, oh, yeah. okay, you just had to move back in with your mother, mm-hmm. with your children, mm-hmm. and now your children are levitating, <laughs> and the family doesn't want to talk to you anymore now. Right. And you just lost another family member. Like, guys, it was one levitation. We've all been there. We're just checking off the bad year bingo card here. Ooh, and we complained about, can you imagine if while we were going through COVID, we also, one of us got, like, haunted? I mean, I kind of do. You kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> We're still the jury's I mean, still out on that one. happened since the garbage can incident, but oh yeah, that was roughly a that was like a year, almost a year ago now. Yeah, maybe it's like a I've, once a year thing. I've Only offered for it February. to come hang out, and it just doesn't. So whatever. Hmm. It's a little Mike shy, S- standoffish. Mm. Campbell says she remembers telling her daughter, "We need help. We need to talk to someone who knows how to deal with this." They didn't. The two women didn't know exactly what they were up against, but they believed that was something supernatural at this point. And they called, well, they started calling local churches. What else would it be? <laughs> these kids this are. This is totally something natural. These dang kids and their pranks. <laughs> <laughs> what are they teaching them in school? Right. Uh, so they started calling local churches. Eventually, after listening to the two women talk about the house and visiting it, Officials at one church told them the Carolina Street House had spirits in it and recommended that the family clean the home with bleach and ammonia and then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. In addition, the church suggested that Amons pour olive oil all over her three children's hands and feet and then smear oil in the shape of crosses onto their foreheads. Saute the children. How much olive oil do you think they went through? Oh, like at least a good gallon oh yeah that's a lot that's a lot and all the doors and all over there it's the passover <laughs> except olive oil campbell and amons also said that they reached out to two clairvoyants who said the family's home was besieged by more than 200 different demons ah and campbell and amons the two women in our story said that made total sense because of their Christian faith. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all, all of, like everyone that we've had on this show for the most part mm-hmm. grew up as a Christian and none, none <laughs> of us had 200 demons in their house. Do you, 
<laughs> I don't think that's how it works. That's just like an entire, that's just one of Hell's regional offices. <laughs> yeah, all, exactly. I'm imagining like this is a corporate work outing and it's just a bunch of demons and demons and like operations division in Hell going to Who's this. doing the marketing for them? Right. Maybe they're doing some market research here. Uh, and in addition to, you know, the olive oil approach and a lot of the other different mixed messages that they received, a lot of people just told them to move, which, as you can imagine, in Gary, Indiana, most families are under quite cash-strapped times. And Okay. Especially can, in 2012, like the recession. Yeah. And can you imagine how many people are slipping around this house with all that olive oil all over the place? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> They're just doing, like, the, uh, the slide into the doorway and, like, the white button-up shirt. <laughs> Oh my god, <laughs> the Tom Cruise yeah. and, uh, like risky business, I think yep, it is. exactly. Oh my gosh. Uh, one clairvoyant told Amons to actually make an altar in the basement, so Amons covered an end table, much like the uh, stuff that we use in, you know, our podcast studio, uh, and cover it with a white sheet. Then, she was instructed to place a white candle in the statue of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus onto the table with a Bible opened to Psalm 91. She then said that, uh, excuse me, her and a friend then put on white t-shirts and white scarves around their heads and started burning sage and sulfur throughout the entire house. And they (laughs) overdid it a bit. Sulfur? Sulfur. (laughs) They overdid it. And it was so, the smoke was so thick that neither of them could breathe and had to get out. <laughs> and those white t-shirts are ruined now. Oh, those white t-shirts are, they are no longer played Covered in soot. This is a different type of white t-shirt contest. How much soot can you get on? <laughs> How much soot? Uh, the friend that she was with, that Amons was with, was also instructed to read Psalm 91 as loud as she possibly could. Yelling throughout the house... <laughs> You will not fear the terror of nights, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Like, oh. why is that the verse? Okay. <laughs> ghosts, the ghosts are like playing a game of cards. Like, can you keep it down? <laughs> yeah, you just gave us a perfect smoking room. Yeah, <laughs> right. Also, how unsettling is it to have a woman yelling Bible verses in a house filled with smoke? That you can't see. Like, yeah. you, can't, you can't see throughout. Uh, the family said that demons then possessed Amons and her children, who the children's ages were 7, 9, and 12. So, you know, it didn't work. It actually made it worse. The kids' eyes bulged. They constantly had evil smiles crossing their faces. And their voices deepened every single time a apparent possession would happen. And Campbell said that the demons didn't affect her because she was born with protection from evil. And that she had a guardian angel that protected her. And why wouldn't she share it with her grandkids? <laughs> One recorded instance uh, featured the youngest boy, who was, like I mentioned, seven. Uh, he ran into a closet, sat in it and start talking to a boy that no one else could see. See, this is why I'm scared of having kids. Them doing some shit like this. And the seven-year-old kept on asking questions about what it was like to be murdered (sighs) to this invisible boy. 
I'm putting that kid on the curb. Yeah, well, I mean, the ghosts try to do it, too. The seven-year-old was once seen being tossed from the bathroom as if he'd, you know, been thrown, and a headboard once smacked into the 12-year-old daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. The 12-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that sometimes she thought that she was being choked and held down until she couldn't speak or move, and she said that a voice while she was getting choked, would be screaming that she'd never see her family again and that she wouldn't live for another 20 minutes. That is terrifying. Finally, in desperation and out of concern for the children, the family went to a physician. The physician said that in 20 years, he's never seen or heard anything like that in his life, and he himself was scared immediately when walking into the room. He said he, or excuse me, in his medical notes about this visit, the doctor wrote that delusions of ghosts in the home and hallucinations are causing mental and physical illnesses in both the uh, Amons and Campbell as well as the children. What happens next during this visit is also calculated, or excuse me, was also detailed in a DCS report from the family case manager as well as. The medical staff. This case manager had to have the weirdest time with this. I can't imagine being like you've seen a lot of weird things. I'm sure as a DCS agent, if you will, but then experiencing okay, this, you either this is like the best day on the job for you, or it's like one of the worst days on the job for you because you. you I'm assuming you're used to walking in on like really broken family homes yeah. where like the kids are getting abused, mm-hmm. and in this one they're just floating around the house <laughs> and crawling up walls and stuff. Right. So Campbell said that Amons's sons cursed the physician in demonic voices and started raging at him. Medical staff said the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him. The boys then abruptly passed out and wouldn't come to. Eventually, 911 was called and seven or eight police officers as well as multiple ambulances showed up to the medical, um, the, this medical office. Police and emergency personnel took the boys to Methodist Hospital, their campus in Gary, Indiana. The boys eventually woke up in the hospital. The older boy, who was then nine, acted rationally, but the youngest screamed and thrashed, and apparently it took five men to hold him down. Meanwhile, the DCS was called to investigate Latoya Amons for possible child abuse and neglect. The person who called believed that the children were, were performing for their mother and was, and Amons was actually encouraging their behavior again as you know, a way to get attention. This is a common thing, though, like in hauntings like this is, first of all, it's usually an environment where it's super high stress. Right. Like her being a single mother with kids, moving back in with her own mother, I'm sure she wasn't having the best time. Yeah. Out, like overall. But also then the more energy, like that negative energy in the house, once it starts happening, it just cycles through and repeats itself and keeps giving it. That this is the theory is that it gives it more energy to sustain itself and right. get more powerful, mm-hmm. especially with kids like the twelve year old girl, like as we mentioned in the Enfield episode, that they kind of feed off of that like prepubescent right. energy. Bodies going through changes and yeah. maturity and stuff. Exactly. 
Hospital personnel examined Latoya Amons and her children and found them to be healthy and actually free of marks and bruises. A hospital psychiatrist was also brought in and evaluated the family and said that Latoya Amons was of complete sound and mind, or excuse, excuse me, was of complete sound mind. While she was speaking with Amons, the seven-year-old boy started growling with his teeth showing. His eyes then rolled to the back of his head. The boy locked his hands around his older brother's throat and refused to let go until adults pried his hands open. Later that evening, a registered nurse, Willie Lee Walker, brought the two boys into a small exam room for an interview. They were joined by their grandmother. The seven-year-old stared into his brother's eyes and began to growl again. It's time to die, the boy said in a deep, unnatural voice. I will kill you. While the youngest boy was speaking in this demonic voice, the older brother started headbutting Campbell, his grandmother, right in the stomach. So one of them speaking in the demon voice and the other Others one is headbutting head his the grandma, grandma in the stomach. <laughs> rough day. You're rough day. Campbell, the grandmother in the situation, grabbed her grandson's hands and started praying. The nine-year-old, again, the one who was, who was headbutting his grandmother, then put on a weird grin and, holding his mother or his grandmother's hands, walked backward and then proceeded to walk backward up the wall all the way up to the ceiling. He then flipped over his grandmother, landing on his feet. Again, never letting go of his grandmother's hand. Are we sure that the grandmother just didn't have very strong forearms? She was, yeah, she had that, gram, that gam gam strength, yeah. you know, <laughs> just flipping. But this report is coincided by the DCS, medical staff, and of course the grandmother and Amons herself. That's crazy. Quote, he walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there. There's no way that he could have done that. Later, police asked whether the boy had run up the wall as though performing an acrobatic trick. Parkour. Yeah, parkour. Witnesses said that the boy glided backward on the floor while in ceiling, so didn't run, just glid. Glid. <laughs> <laughs> One witness said that we didn't know what was going on. That was crazy. I said, we all have to get out of the room. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> she was wild. Yeah. Eamon said that she spent the night at the hospital with her seven-year-old son while Campbell took Eamon's daughter and older son to a relative's home in Gary. The next day was Eamon's youngest son's eighth birthday. Eamon said that the DCS officials asked Campbell to bring the older children back to the hospital. The family celebrated the boy's birthday by singing and eating a cupcake, but then Eamon's was told that the children would no longer be going home with her. All of the children, the DCS report reads, all the children were experiencing spiritual and emotional distress. Latoya Amons later told uh, reporters that she'd already had been through so much and fought so hard for her family's lives. It was obvious we were a team and we were beating it, whatever we were fighting. We made it together, as, or made it through together as a team, and then they separated us. Less than a week later, the two women were back on Carolina Street to let 
the DCS family case manager, as well as police, check on the condition of the home. Two officers, one from both the Gary and Hammond police departments, joined uh, the, I guess, what do you call the tour? Sure, <laughs> yeah. Of the home. Latoya Amons refused to go inside, but Campbell agreed to accompany the group. The main floor had three bedrooms, a living room, one bathroom, hardwood floors, and a small open-style kitchen. A door in the kitchen led to a basement with concrete floors. Directly under the stairs was a dirt floor. The concrete around it was jagged as though it had actually been broken. The makeshift altar that was in the basement that Amons had created was still in place, along with rings of salt that she had poured against the basement walls to dissuade the demons. <laughs> Campbell, who again was the grandmother in this house, told officers that demons emanated from beneath the stairs. During the interview with Campbell, one of the officers' audio recorders started malfunctioning. And according to police records, the power light flashed to indicate that the batteries were dying, even though the officer had placed fresh batteries in there earlier, had placed fresh batteries in the device earlier that day. That is one of the weirdest things with these supposed haunted places that I've never understood mm -hmm. is the fact that like equipment dies so quickly. I mean, any electrical source, I guess ghosts just love them some energy. I like the United States with oil. I've been watching uh, this YouTube channel. It's called Sam and Colby. It's just these two guys that go to like all the haunted locations in the world and do investigations there. Sure. And they went to the place that I'll be talking about and they had fresh batteries and all of their stuff. And the guy that worked there gave them another piece of equipment that they could use while they were there with fresh batteries in it and they brought it inside after that guy left and then like 10 minutes later it was already dead and then really? like two hours later after they went to go get fresh batteries they came back and they only got enough batteries for their equipment not that thing mm. but they tried it again and it turned on when they got oh. back so it's like yeah so weird that is very weird Another officer that was at that was on the scene was recording audio and when he played it back later he kept on hearing a recurring unknown voice whisper, Hey. Is that audio available? No, I try to <sighs> Dang. That, I mean, I could double down and try to look for it before we publish, but uh, yeah, I'll get back to you on that one. The officer that was recording also took photos of the house, and in one photo of the basement stairs, there was a cloudy white image in the upper right-hand corner. When the photo was enlarged, the cloud resembled a face. The enlargement also revealed a second green image that had the appearance of a female. Police chief, or the Gary police chief, said that the photos he snapped with his iPhone also seemed to have strange sil silhouettes in them. The radio in his police-issued Ford malfunctioned on the way home. And after that, he said that the garage at his home refused to open, even though the power was on everywhere else. He even said that the driver's seat in his personal 2005 Infinity also started moving backward and forward, and when he took it into the dealership, the mechanic told him that the motor on the driver's seat broke, which the mechanic said was a, I mean, that just doesn't happen, and could have caused a distraction while he was driving, leading to an accident. So you can kind of see that 
even the police department is trying to catch They're some trying residuals. To, trying to kill here. the cops. They're trying to get the cops. I get it, a cab, but like, yeah. this isn't the time. Right, not now, ghosts. <laughs> We're trying to help a family. Right. <laughs> Another group was formed to go throughout the house, and it included Campbell, Amons, police, scary police chief Austin, and the two other police officers from the first visit. They were also joined this time around by a Catholic priest and two additional police officers with a police dog. Oh, puppy. Oh, no, good boy. The county officer took his police dog around the home, but the dog didn't show any interest in any particular area because, I mean, they were looking for drugs because everyone was freaking out, but did not find any. Apparently, when when the group investigated the basement, they kept on running into strange liquid, unidentifiable liquid, dripping into the basement, and said that it was sticky between the fingers. The Catholic priest told the police that he wanted to check the dirt under the stairs for a pentagram or any personal objects that could have been cursed. He said that the pentagram would give great reason as to why the house was haunted, because that would be a portal to hell. Uh, yep, that'll do it. One of the police officers then proceeded to dig a four by three foot hole underneath the stairs. <laughs> He's just trying to bury the priest. <laughs> yeah. And he found a pink press on fingernail, a white pair of panties, a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off, and... <laughs> Candy wrappers and a heavy metal object that looked like a wape for a drapery cord. One of these things is not like the not others. like the other at all. <laughs> the Catholic priest blessed some salt and then spread it under the stairs to make sure that no ghosts can come through the basement. Less than ten minutes later, one of the members of the group said that she was having a panic attack and couldn't breathe, so she ran out of the house. When the priest started questioning Amons inside the house, Amons complained of a headache and shoulder pain and ran out of the house as well. Not even the police captain, Austin, would stay in the house past nightfall. With more than three decades on the force, he said, nope, I'm out of there. On the main floor, they noticed, again, that the same like oil-like liquid it's that they probably, saw the olive oil, right? Olive, olive oil. oil. There's probably so much of it just creeping through the cracks. <laughs> right. Oh, man. But continuing on. Eventually, the Catholic priest that attended the, the second home, again, tour, if you will, was granted an exorcism to be performed on Latoya Amons and, well, excuse me, just Latoya Amons in the house. This was the first authorization of an exercise or of an exorcism in 21 years, uh, or from this bishop in 21 years. So very rare for this to be happening. Yeah, it's not actually, despite common belief, it's not very common for priests to actually do exorcisms. There's like so many other steps that they have to do along the way before it actually gets verified to do it. So right, they don't they don't hand out uh, exorcisms willy nilly. Nope. That is for sure. The Catholic priests ultimately performed three separate, quote, major exorcisms on Amens, two in English and one in Latin. 
What's the difference between a major and a minor exorcism? So apparently that was kind of what I glanced over a little bit. The minor exorcisms are just standard prayer. Like it's, oh, okay. So put it in perspective, it's like a prayer circle, if you will, with just some kumbaya, my lord. And, and the major one is like where they tie her to a chair and scream at her. The major one needed like two police back, like two police officers as backup yeah. to really get into it. The Catholic priests uh, performed these uh, in June of 2012, and during each, the priest praised God and condemned the devil. He pressed the crucifix against Amon's head as he spoke. I cast you out, unclean spirits, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all your fell companions in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic priest's voice continued to get louder and louder and more forceful until the demon apparently weakened, which the priest said he could tell because the demon made Amon's vomit profusely. Gross. Very gross. She's just having a rough time. <laughs> the, while this was happening, the two police officers who were standing by actually had to hold back Amon's, had to restrain her while, she was, while this was happening. Eamon said that she felt as if something inside her was trying to hold on and inflict pain at the same time, and said that it was a very natural deep pain, and was as intense as giving birth. She's quoted, I was hurting all over from the inside out, and I was just trying to do my best and be strong. Eventually, Latoya Eamon fell asleep during the ritual, and the Catholic priest said that this was the demon's way of lessening its hold on her. After the final exorcism at the end of June 2012, the Catholic priest said that he prayed and berated the demons in Latin. <laughs> Just Yo, scold, mama's scold, so fat! Scolded the demons. <laughs> <laughs> but in Latin. Uh, police officers did not attend the final exorcism, and the Catholic priest said that he just had his brother stand guard. Amons again convulsed profusely while the exorcism was happening, and when she eventually fell asleep, the Catholic priest said that it was all done and that she had apparently just no more demons in her. All 200 of them, huh? All 200 of them, <laughs> just gone. Uh, Amons' old home on Carolina Street became an object of local curiosity. So much that the owner and landlord, Charles Reed, called the Gary Police Department to ask officers to stop driving by the house because <laughs> it was scaring the new tenant. Apparently, there were literally no more incidents of anything demon-like after the Amons eventually moved out. Hmm. And there were no reports of anything happening beforehand. So, this literally just happened to this family of five. That. <laughs> that is a rough time for for her. Yeah, that is so rough. And eventually the children were returned to Latoya Good. Amons and Campbell. Uh, there were no more demonic presences in the house, and apparently the children are doing just a-okay now. Good. But yeah, what a wild thing to happen in Indianapolis. Yeah. Or not Indianapolis, excuse me, Indiana. I know we were making like a lot of jokes, but in reality, this would be extremely terrifying. Even if it is just mental illness or delusion or high stress panic attacks, 
Yeah, it's that's like, unbelievable. You scary. never want to see your kids having that type of reaction to anything. So no, I wouldn't would not wish that upon anybody, especially you, someone in her situation who's going through it. So you never want to see a kid walk up a wall. No, and do flips. Nope. Even though it's sick. I, I mean, mean parkour. I want to see it right now, but that's just because I've just been told this story. Right. I don't think I can get the old puppers over here to do it. No. But <laughs> that might be a little tough. Probably a little hard, but whew, no thanks. And there's some heebie-jeebies for I'm you. I'm good. I'm good on all, all accounts. Yeah. Anytime a child is doing that, like, I'm going to kill you or, or something. Like, like hiding that. in the closet, like talking to their fr- talking to imaginary a friend. I never want to like ask my kid one day, like, hey, who are you talking to? And he's like, the boy I... with half a face. Right. Or he's like, what do you mean I can't tell him? Like, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, is, uh, that might be worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just no, give myself goosebumps. No, thank you. Mm. Whew. Well, after that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like kids walking up walls. I, that would, pro- <laughs> I mean, Honestly, I want to say that I'd be terrified, but at the same time, I'd be like, this is kind of awesome. I would, there's probably just so much adrenaline that happens. But I guess if he is like walking up it like literally backwards, like heel first, going up the wall, like, hmm, eh. He's just taking the moonwalk to a whole new level, (laughs) to be honest. He's just very inspired by Michael Jackson. But are you ready for my unsolved murder case? I never am, but let's do it. Right, <laughs> you usually good. get very mad during these. Yeah, for justifiable reasons, I'd say. So just after midnight on June 10th, 1912, an unknown person made their way through a modest house in the small town of Villisca, Iowa. While the Moore family slept, this mystery person gripped an axe and made their way from room to room and took out all of the family members one by one seemingly with none of them waking up in the process. Very interesting, because I can't imagine Axe murder is very quiet. Yeah, and as we'll see, it, it's not like he was not hitting stuff when he was doing this. Like He was hitting walls, so it's, it's not like this would be a quiet thing to be doing. He didn't have the silencer on his axe? <laughs> yeah, he didn't have the rubber blunter on the front right. of the axe. In total, eight people would wind up dead. But to this day, nobody knows who did it. Despite this being unsolved, the house is still active to this day, albeit in a different capacity. Oh. The location where this brutal crime was committed is now said to be one of the most haunted locations in the United States and holds daytime tours and overnight stays to anyone willing to brave the potential horrors. I have been one of those people. (laughs) I am one of the survivors, and this is my story. (laughs) Yeah. I'll talk about my experience in a bit, but first, I want to tell you guys the story of the Velisca Axe Murder House. Yeah, just a little research I did on this beforehand. You're a wild boy. Like, I would never... It was really cool. I don't even want to go here during the day. I want to go again. (laughs) For content, fine. Yeah, let's do it. So, the story of the Velisca Axe Murders is as follows. On Sunday, June 9th, 1912, the Moore family, parents Josiah and Sarah, along with their children Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, attended the Children's Day service at their local church. And for reference, the children are eight, they range in age from 12 to 5. So not like old kids. 
Sarah Moore, the mother, was a director at the church and led the children in their speeches, and the service ended around 9.30 p.m., so it was an evening service. Afterwards, two neighbor girls named Lena and Ina Stillinger came back to the Moore house with the family for an overnight stay. The eight of them walked home and ended the evening with cookies and milk and headed to bed. Shortly after midnight, the killer or killers grabbed the father's axe and an oil lamp from the dresser. They removed the cover from the lamp and placed it under a chair and lit it so low that it only cast a faint glimmer in the house. The stranger first moved upstairs and went into the room of the parents. He raised the axe so high on his first swing that it gouged the ceiling and brought the blunt end of the blade down on Joe Moore's head and instantly followed by striking Sarah. He followed into the room next door and went one by one through the children in that room, with no evidence of any of them waking up during this process. Jeez. There is also no evidence that the two guest girls downstairs awoke during the process either. But that was where the stranger was headed next. He moved downstairs after the Moore family was taken out and proceeded to take out both of the Stillinger girls, and at this point, one of them possibly woke up just before she was killed. That is crazy that no one woke up, because I'm looking at the picture of the house, and it's not huge. It's, no, it's a pretty tidy house. Like For eight people being in it? like Yeah, I, like for the time, it was probably a relatively nice house, because mm-hmm. it oh, sure. it's quite large for like a 1912 home. But, like, yeah, the kitchen area is, like, a 10 by 10 square. But, uh, yeah, the rest of the house is, like, not much bigger than, mm-hmm. like, the kitchen size. So it's, like, you have to fit a bedroom in the one half and a living room. And then you also go upstairs, and then there's a bedroom and another bedroom, and then there's an attic. Right. So it's not a lot of space for all of these people. So it's very... Very surprising, and everything's wooden. Like all of the floors are wood, so any t- like move you make, it does make a lot of noise. Yeah, there's a thump. But there is a train nearby that it does make quite a bit of noise when it goes by. So possibly they could have waited until the train was going by to mask their footsteps. Yeah, that'd be very calculated. So, Especially if it's someone like we're talking small town Iowa, they would know that that's there. Yeah. So it's most likely in my head already. It's. Someone that's familiar with the area, maybe even familiar with the family, maybe not like a random person. Yeah, it's not a bad guess. After his first trip through the house, the killer retraced his steps and proceeded to reduce the heads of all of the Moore family to unrecognizable messes. He continued by covering all of the Moors' faces and did the same with the girls downstairs. Next, he covered up all of the mirrors and every piece of glass in the house. At some point, the killer also took a two-pound slab of bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and left it on the floor downstairs. Rumors say that he may have sexually gratified himself with it since Lena Stillinger's nightgown had been moved up. Regardless, he stayed in the house for a while. He sexually assaulted the corpse? No, he didn't. It said that none of the bodies had any evidence of sexual assault but there was a chair seated at the end of the bed where the girl was ah i gotcha yeah Uh, it's not good and the bacon was just for like that's what he yeah because it was just left on the floor in the bedroom so does the bacon need a lawyer maybe need a lawyer probably Probably. yes (laughs) 
And so I guess he did assault a corpse. It's just a pig. It's just... <laughs> that was good. And that that's how good. we break the tension. And that's how, yeah, that's how we put a little humor in this murder of eight. Regardless, the uh, killer stayed in the house for a while after he committed his dirty deeds and filled a bowl with water, which he used to wash his hands with. He left the lamp at the top of the stairs and left the house just as unnoticed as he had arrived. He took the keys from the home and locked the door behind him. The next morning, when the neighbors noticed that the home was quiet, they called Joe's brother Ross and asked him to investigate the house. Ross had a key, so he opened the front door and found the brutal crime scene. He immediately called for the marshal, but in such a tight-knit community, it didn't take long for the entire town to come by to view the crime scene and thus greatly contaminate the crime scene itself, with rumor of one person even removing fragments of Joe Moore's skull as a keepsake. Well, put that guy in jail. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right? a, like that's a red flag that I've ever heard one. But it's interesting that that happens so often because I remember the I believe it was the murders in Germany that we covered. The Hinterkaifeck. This yes, case has yes. a lot of resemblances to that case. Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, it's the first thing that popped in my mind. Like the killers in both cases just chilled at the house after they were done, covered the bodies up, covered the bodies up, and then, I mean, they got away with it yeah <laughs> they were, so and like the entire town just comes around and why is this that's the most interesting thing like you go there i guess but stay outside yeah. why are you going inside but i mean police forces were still like relatively new like in terms of how long we've been around as human beings so i mean yeah. it's not like they were the most organized things in the world at this point so trying to cordon off a, an entire murder scene after like the neighbor knows the family know, like the family yeah. members in town know all of the other neighbors probably heard about it right away so even before you get there it's probably already been 10 15 people in the house so right at that point it's just a free-for-all yeah but yeah definitely lock up the guy that took uh yeah fragments of the skull that it should be a that should be a layup. It, it was him. This is very frustrating, though, overall, because now it's so hard to use any of the evidence that we've collected from then to reopen the case now, because it's all oh. going to be contaminated with fingerprints and DNA and, right. and everything else. So. Right, right. But in a town where 30 or so trains stopped every day, the five hours that the suspect had would have allowed them to make a good escape. Eventually, bloodhounds were brought in, but they had no success, and this left the police with nothing but hearsay and whatever scrappy investigation they could put together, basically only determining that the killer had to be left-handed by the way that the axe marks were located in the house. So they didn't have much. No, not and a lot. Then we saw prejudice of everyone that was left-handed in the town. So, funeral services for the eight people that perished in this massacre were held on June 12th, 1912, in the town square. So now we get to who done it. Who'd have done it? Who, who, did, who did, did it? Who did the thing? Who did the axing? The first suspect was a man named Frank Jones, most generic name in the history of the world. He was a local businessman and a state senator in Iowa. He had employed Joe Moore for seven years, but Moore had recently left his employee due to him extending the hours at the job, 
And then Joe Moore proceeded to open his own business to rival Frank Jones and eventually took Jones's valuable John Deere contract. Ooh, okay. It was also a rumor that Joe Moore had been sleeping with Frank's, and this is from the article how they quoted it, vivacious daughter-in-law. Oh. And she was apparently known around town for being involved in quite a few affairs. Well, I mean, she doesn't get the nickname Vivacious Biv for nothing. She is a good look. They have a picture of her in one of the cold case file articles, and mm-hmm. she's not a bad looking lady. So, would you conduct a demonic ceremony for her? Like how <laughs> scale of one to <laughs> scale, scale of one, one to summon a demon. scale of one to breaking my shower head for her uh, during a <laughs> satanic ritual? Uh, I don't think that can fit on a t shirt, but we'll no. workshop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we can make it work. I don't think I would do a satanic ritual for her. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. But she's not bad looking. But she was very open about discussing her affairs on the phone in a time where phone operators could flick a switch and hear all of the conversations going on between the two people on the line. That's right. Phone (laughs) operators got all the tea. Yeah. And in a small, tight-knit community like Villisca, Iowa, it's not unreasonable to say that they just spread very quickly. Oh, yeah. The rumor mill was churning. Yes. But regardless of these reasons, the relationship for, between Joe Moore and Frank Jones had eventually gone so cold that they would cross the street to avoid each other when they were passing each other on the road, which was pretty obvious and noticeable in a small, tight-knit community like Villisca, Iowa. It sounds so high school. It, yeah. It's like you're walking down the hallways and see your person you're beefing with and just cross to the other Don't side. Don't even want to associate with you. Don't even want to. You can't sit with us. It was told that Frank Jones was apparently planning to hire a killer named William Mansfield to murder Joe Moore to get revenge for humiliating him and putting a stain on his political career. So he wasn't going to do it himself. He was going to hire someone else. He was going to hire a hitman. How does one find a hitman in small town Iowa? Small 1900s. (laughs) Put it on the bulletin bulletin board at church. Right. (laughs) But it was found that William Mansfield had an ironclad alibi for the night of the murders because he had payroll records from hundreds of miles outside of Illinois and Iowa and was released. Hmm. It is also curious to me why Frank Jones would want to kill the entire family, including the children and two visiting girls, just over a business rivalry with the father figure of the family. But with John Deere... I don't know if that's worth killing. Not just a (laughs) whole family, but also part of another one. That could be a little bit of an overreaction. I I would say, well, I guess if you're hiring someone else to do it, though, who's going to say when they're going to stop? Right. I guess he didn't include instructions. No witnesses. Yeah. (laughs) This is the prototype. No Russian. Yeah, no (laughs) No Russian, Russian. The prototype. The second main suspect is a traveling preacher named Reverend Lynn Kelly who had attended the Children's Day service in Villisca, where the Moore children had performed. At 5.19 a.m. the morning following the murders, the Reverend left Villisca on a westbound train, and while aboard, allegedly told other passengers that there were eight dead souls back in town, killed while they slept. But the bodies had not been discovered at that point in time. Oh, so, oh, oh, slightly suspicious, I'd say. Uh, red flag, crimson, crimson red. I would say on the scale of suspiciousness, that's just above slightly. 
And he was asked, so, like, uh, what you, what you traveling for? He's like, eight dead souls. Killed in their beds. He, yeah. he also returned to town two weeks later and apparently posed as a detective to tour the murder house with another group. So they're already given tours. They're giving of tours the house house. after two weeks. Oh, my God. There's an open and shut case. Capitalizing don't know on the it. market. Yeah, right. Reverend Kelly had a reputation in the Midwest, specifically around the area of Villisca, for odd behavior and had been convicted for sending obscene material through the mail and had spent time in a mental hospital. So, he was sending nudes in 1912? Yeah, and he was peeping on people a lot. Oh. And he had spent time in a mental hospital, so he's not ideally the best pastor. What were the qualifications? <laughs> what were the qualifications for being, being able a to read? <laughs> right? Can you read the Bible? Kind of. Sure. I guess. He was also left-handed. Oh, the plot thickens. Lending credence to the theory that he could be the killer. A grand jury actually did indict Kelly for Lena Stillinger's murder, and was interrogated throughout the summer of 1917 even going so far as to sign a confession to the murder, saying that God whispered to him to, quote, suffer the children to come to me, end quote. Really? So, on the scale of suspiciousness, he's now gone from slightly above slightly to very. <laughs> to very, and uh, you said he was indicted? Yeah, so he, he was indicted by a grand jury, so he had to go to prison to be held and interrogated, and yeah, right. now he has to go to an actual trial. However, he was later recanted, or he later recanted his confession at the trial, and the jury deadlocked for acquittal, and eventually a second jury came in and did acquit Reverend Kelly in November of 1917, and he was the only person to ever officially be tried for the murders. Interesting. I would love to, I would love to see, like, court records. Right. Because it had to be pretty convincing. It, it was 11 to 1 to acquit him. So, wow. I mean... It had to be a pretty convincing defensive case if they're just like, he couldn't have done it. That's very interesting. Yeah, kind of crazy. So those are the two main suspects that everyone will talk about in every article that you read. However, there is a new one that's popped up recently that isn't on most of these lists. And this is one that we actually did mention in our Hinter Kaifek episode. That's right, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode, in the book, The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James, a suggestion returns, again, that there may have been a serial killer in the area who was traveling around the Midwest. Paul Miller, a German immigrant who worked as a farmhand, supposedly slayed a family in Massachusetts in 1897, and his M.O. matches up closely with the Velisca case. He would use the same blunt backside of the axe in all of the cases that he is involved in, and usually his cases took place in small towns at the same time of the day. These locations also usually intersected at intersecting railway lines, which is said to be how he traveled so much and got from town to town to do his various murders. In addition, the killer would lock the door behind him, the bodies and windows would be covered, and a lantern would be taken and left somewhere outside. So, perhaps one of the earliest known serial killers in America is responsible for the brutal family murders. I mean, it has all the qualifications that we typically see in 
yeah. serial killers. You know, there's a methodical approach to it, ranging from using the blunt side of the weapon to covering glass and all the windows and stuff in this case. Also, just loved killing kids, apparently. So there is a lot of credence to this being a serial killer. Yeah, and I mean, he, I believe, has known to have killed in St. Louis, so it's not that far away right. from Villisca. And yeah, I mean, it, it's not unplausible. All by train, that's about two, three hours two there. Yeah. And Rachel McCarthy James has said in interviews that she's 85% sure that this case is a, a product of Paul Miller. Really? That's how confident that she is that this is who did it. <laughs> so interesting. That says something. I mean, I think it does make, unless you drop another bombshell on me right now, but I think it does. This, that's what I'm leaning towards, that, to be honest. It makes more sense that someone did this as part of their method, if you yeah. will, as opposed to someone in like the small town or a hitman. Yeah. And you may be asking, like, why would you use the blunt side of the axe? But. It's, I, think I asked that during your Kaifek too. Yeah. Like, wow, so it, it is just because then it won't get stuck when you hit someone with it. Right. It's, it's quicker to just bludgeon them with it. And if it doesn't even, even if it doesn't kill them immediately, it'll at least knock them unconscious. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you strike them with a blade, it'll cut in. It won't necessarily knock them out. And you could still get that thing stuck, leaving room for someone else to wake up and come get you. So it was just more efficient that way. Right. It's like you can, if you get hit by an axe, like the sharp side, and it's not perfect, you can still like wake up and scream. Yeah. Like in ancient executions, when they tried to cut people's heads off with axes, a lot of times they hit them in the back of the head and they would just scream. So it's not like... Frickin' A! (laughs) So it's not like they were dead. Yeah. But those are the three suspects that really hold any weight in this case i guess four if you want to count the guy that was like had an ironclad alibi but (laughs) yeah so it's it's anyone's guess still and as i mentioned earlier the house is still open to tours and overnight stays to this day uh last that i i watched the video from sam and colby as i mentioned where they went there and stayed there and the tour guide said that they are booked out for over a year so it is quite a wait if you want to get to do this experience like the overnight yep so it is not a bad business and and they've never advertised ever i mean looking at the website right now and it would like i could have made this yeah i know it's not it's not high tech no they've never advertised it's all word of mouth but they get like hundreds of groups a year that come and do this so i think it'd be more of a red flag if it was well advertised yeah (laughs) right but One case didn't go so well for those involved. On November 7th, 2014, a paranormal investigator from Rhinelander, Wisconsin, ended his tour at the Velisca house being rushed to the hospital after being found with a self-inflicted stab wound to his chest. He was apparently alone in one of the bedrooms while the rest of the party was outside, and he said that he blacked out and doesn't remember anything and apparently when he get, came to again, he called for help from inside on one of the two-way radios, and the rest of the group came in to find the man had stabbed himself in the chest. So he was rushed to the hospital. He's recovered from his injuries. He didn't die. But the uh, fame of Velisca has only increased since. Uh, not for the reasons that they would like it to, but this kind of get, put it on the map even more, I guess you could say. Ooh, yeah. I mean... You have to wonder what was going through his head, like 
to actually take a knife and stab yourself in the chest. That's yeah. He said he just kind of like had this overwhelming pressure around him and kind of blacked out and then woke up with a knife, with in, a his knife in his chest. So whom among us haven't whomst among us? Yeah, who hasn't yeah. had a, a rowdy night in college that ended up with a knife in their chest? House party. Hey, yo. <laughs> Famous YouTube channels other than Sam and Colby that have been here include BuzzFeed Unsolved. So it's it's been well documented at this point that this place is a very haunted location. And the Sam and Colby YouTube channel is actually really cool. So if you guys want more like personal investigation stories that are well produced and cool and have a lot of cool stuff going on, I would suggest watching their channel. It's a lot of fun. Shout out them. And as I mentioned earlier... I have also stayed overnight in this house. So I went with a group of friends. I want to say this probably six, seven years ago at this point. And we bought security cameras, four security cameras on like closed circuit, set them up throughout the house in different locations upstairs where the parents' room was, down the hallway so that you could see. Because apparently the kids like to roll balls down the hallways and stuff like that. So we set those up to see if anything like that happened. We didn't really see all that much when we were there. And nothing really happened. My one buddy, who was kind of like the lead investigator for our group, actually slept in the bed that Lena and Ina slept in, which is said to be the most haunted room. I think it's called the Blue Room. Oh, he a wild boy. I would. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I slept fine. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Woke up to the smell of bacon. Sure. Good for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very eerie staying in this house at night. As I said earlier, everything's wood and it's not that big. So all of the noise is amplified inside. And aside from our group, many people report being touched and hearing footsteps. There are pictures in the office when you check in of people with scratch marks on their back and stuff like that. There's a a notebook that you can write your experiences in after you are done with your investigation so that other people can read it and see if they have had similar experiences to what you had. And the activity is especially strong near the attic room upstairs. And the reasoning for this is because a lot of theories believe that this is where the killer may have hid in the house while the family was at church until they got back and then waited for them to go to bed, snuck out, and proceeded to kill everybody. Which, again, is pretty similar to Hendrik Hyfek, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. So, many have gone to the house in the hopes that their investigation may yield some answers for who may have committed the crimes, but as of now, nobody has a concrete answer. And I feel like that is how it will remain. And I think that's better for them if it remains that way. Better for the people running it, at least. Oh, for sure. If they finally find out who did it, then yeah. it kind of takes a little bit of the, I guess, attraction to it, if you will. Yeah. Surprisingly, so- I'm looking at the uh, calendar. Booked solid for the month of October. Yeah, I would think I would guess so. <clears throat> and like 28 out of 31 days in November. So this place is popping. Hey, if you want to get in there those two days in November, unless it's the holiday and they're closed. But right, that was it was Thanksgiving. Then okay, then never mind. Day. Sorry, guys. Yeah, you're gonna be waiting a while. That is insane. That there's just so much intrigue to this house. And yeah, it's like the most haunted house in. In, in America, Iowa, for like sure. In Iowa, oh, for sure. In Iowa. But yeah, this is really interesting. Yeah. It's like this house, the Sally house, 
those two are like the biggest ones i think in the u.s that get talked about as far as like residential homes because there's also waverly hills sanatorium which is an old tuberculosis hospital which i've also gone to i was about to say another place that you've uh that you've did you guys do like a full investigation for that one like yeah the cameras and all that yeah did the cameras pick up anything here like anything even semi not really any specks of like those little specks that you always i see actually like did adventures? get a weird picture and i don't really believe in the orb stuff but i did mm-hmm. take a picture on my phone where i had the the flashlight aimed down the hallway and then i took one immediately after that with the flashlight turned off and i just used the flash on my phone and they're literally taken like five seconds apart and my phone flash you can see a bunch of stuff floating in the air in the middle of the hallway where you couldn't see it with the flashlight so that was kind of weird but i don't know if it's just because the light catches it differently versus phone light and flashlight so sure but yeah i don't know orbs are kind of they're kind of bunk to me <laughs> i don't think they're really anything you know what the only thing i use my orbs for is when i contemplate and stare into i will my pon- orb. i will ponder an orb i will whom's among us again has not pondered an <laughs> orb for at least a fortnight everyone you at home get out there and ponder your orb this weekend that means do some critical thinking. It's nothing dirty. <laughs> yeah, it's literally from a Dungeons and Dragons guidebook. So yeah, you wrap scallions. But yeah, that is the story of the Velisca Axe Murder House. Very interested. And now, so I've, who do you think did it? You think Paul Miller? I do think it's the serial killer. Okay. There's just so much calculation in it, especially the fact that he, this person, got away with it too. Yeah. And if it's, I think it's if, it, if it's anyone else. If the other people that you brought up, they wouldn't have killed the kids. Like, there's no reason for anyone else in that. The only reason I could say that it would be the reverend is because he was so weird. Like, he yeah. was so perverted that I could see him maybe doing that. But I don't... Was there sexual assault in Hinter Kaifek? Mm-mm. Just interesting that that's... Like, that's kind of, like, almost the only difference between the two cases. And that's unusual. For a serial killer. Like right. a lot of the times there is a sexual motivation there, but yeah. I guess in this case there wasn't, I mean, kind of, I guess. I don't know. There's like one investigator that said like, oh, there was like seminal fluid found there Ooh. and stuff. So it's like, I don't know if he's right or if he just are trying to juice the story. Right. Either way. Eight people got murdered in the same house. In so horrific fashion. It's, it reminds me of like an old, older version of the Amityville horror, mm. where the, the guy went through his whole house and shot his whole family and none of them woke up. It's like, how did those things happen? I, I don't understand how you can go through a house with a thirty out 6 rifle and shoot five people. It was a rifle, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like... Jeez. Yeah, weird. These cases are all weird. Maybe we'll cover that one for for this spooky season. That would be Amityville. good. And I also love like the Amityville horror movie. Yeah, too. with Ryan Gosling. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yeah. A, that's a weird role for him. Right, that's like early career. Or must be early career yeah. for him. He does a really good job in that movie, though. You know what? Terrific actor. Good job. Even a better person, you know. Great follow on Twitter. Ryan Gosling, you got you have our support. <laughs> oh wait, I'm thinking of Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> I mean him too. Him too. Yeah support for both of, all of the ryan hey we love we love ryan's around here, I guess. <laughs> but before we leave you guys for this episode we are going to do some horror movie recommendations yeah so yeah. 
I don't know if this is going to be like me recommending a movie for Evan to watch and then vice versa so that we can come talk about them next week or if this is just for you at home. Maybe a little bit of both. I okay. mean, I'll, I'm just worried because my scary movies, like they're, they'll, they'll get your goosebumps going. I did see your tweet that you got spooked the other night. I was, yeah, it was last night. I was just walking. Like I thought I could get to the kitchen and back to the living room. So it's literally like 10 steps. Yeah. 10 steps before, like during a lull of a scary movie without pausing it. <laughs> and I got caught during a horrendous spook. No blanket on, just standing in the middle, just in open <laughs> air. And legit, like, I curled up, like, I protected my chest and, like, did, like, a... Uh. <laughs> and legit, I thought, like, yeah, that's... I just got shot. Is that the movie you're going to be recommending? It is, yeah. Okay, what is, what is your movie, Evan? So I actually have two. Okay. The one that made me... Uh, it's called Lights Out. Okay. So the basic premise is that there's this entity that can only appear and be seen and do damage uh, to people when the lights are out, when it's dark, and I think that's all you really need to know. Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. And the other one, which I think is just a great, great movie that doesn't really get talked about too much, is called Oculus. I that was mine. Was it really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Oculus is so good. It's, I just watched it again the other night. I watched it last week, too. Yeah, it's directed by Mike Flanagan, the guy that does Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass and all those shows, so you know you're in for a trip. That's right. I forgot about Midnight Mass, because I love, love Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, his stuff is really good, because Oculus doesn't really fit this mold as much, but like Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass, they don't really rely on like jump scare horror, which I think he takes advantage of the longer format series versus the movie format where oculus he kind of relies a little more on jump scares Mm -hmm. but it is a fantastic movie for those of you at home that have never seen it the basic premise is uh fam the parents in a family get killed uh the son shoots the father and gets locked up and then the sister has been spending the all the time while her brother is incarcerated to try and find a mirror that they think is responsible for haunting the family and causing the parents to go insane, basically. So her goal is to try and exonerate her brother by finding this mirror and then proving that it's haunted with him. So it's very cool. It's very trippy. It is. So it'll it'll take you down a lot of different avenues of thought <laughs> as you're watching It's definitely one like when the first time i watch it definitely a confusing movie yeah so if you feel like when you're watching it and you feel like a little like what's going on just stick through it it all makes sense yep it's oh, it's so good <clears throat> but just the i love talking about haunting of hill house yeah and like that not relying on jump scared uh for your horror medium your channel whatever movie show the way that he uses tension like, yeah. throughout a scene and just those long, no, just long, drifting camera shots. Yeah. Mike Flanagan, like, shout out. Like, that is... And all of, like, the hidden things that he puts in the background of scenes. You just... I just thought of one yeah. that's kind of known. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps. So good. It's so... But since Evan had to go and steal my movie, uh, I'm going to recommend Mandy. It's a Nicolas Cage movie. Yes, and it's yes, yes. I've told so many people that they should watch it, and nobody that I've told has watched it yet. So if you at home have never seen Mandy, it came out in 2018. 
It's a Nicolas Cage movie. The first half is almost like a cult movie. And the second half is like a classic slasher movie. And oh my goodness, it is, <laughs> it is surprisingly good. And I, it's kind of got a cult following now. But was the, entered in Sundance, I see. The second half of the movie, Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. says maybe 15 total words. <laughs> You know what? I'll watch this bad boy tonight. We'll yes, see. it's so good. I think I rented it from Amazon for like three dollars. Uh, I think it's. I think when I looked today, it said it was on Tubi for free. But I don't know if you need to sign up for Tubi and stuff like that to get it. But or not Tubi. Eh. Eh. <laughs> eh. Or not Mandy. Hey, hey, there we go. All right. But those are movie recommendations for this week. So if you have nothing going on and want to get spooked, check out either uh, Oculus, Mandy, or Lights Out. Yes. Which I'll be watching Lights Out because I've never seen that one. So then we can talk about that next week. It is a good one. It is a good one. Would you, we talked about it, Midnight Mass. Is that another one that you would definitely oh, yeah. recommend? I think for me personally, Midnight Mass out of Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass is probably my favorite. Really? Yeah. And okay. Then, then Hill House, then Bly Manor. So, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, Bly Manor definitely could have been better. Yeah, it, it was could've... good, but it just got repetitive. And a little bit of a definitely a spoiler warning for Bly Manor. So if just get just like hit the next thirty seconds or whatever, I just didn't get it. Like, yeah, why? Like, why is why? I just didn't understand the haunting of it. Like, why is everyone that died there just like kept repeating their life? I guess I don't know. Right? It's like that's a good twist, but it's like why? But why is it scary? I just didn't yeah. Get it, it, was, I guess. It, it was definitely more of a story, right? Series than it was like a scary series. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I would recommend Midnight Mass. It is very good. But it's also more of a creature movie than the other two shows are, or oh, a creature okay. show than the other two shows. How would you rate, like, in terms of genre of horror movies? Like, do you go, par- like, for me, it's, I would say, paranormal are my favorite ones, slasher movies, and then, like, your creature movies. I don't care for gore stuff. Yeah. Um, but I would say, like, those are, like, my top three. Uh, so I would have said paranormal stuff was my favorite, but now I've kind of come around to slashers more. I, sure. I think there's kind of a, it's a weird art form to try and master to make yeah. a good slasher movie mm-hmm. where you have to actually make it like suspenseful and an art form in and of itself. It's so weird hard as that to sounds. do. No, it's so hard to yeah. do. Like there's truly probably three like great series that have done it pretty well yeah and they just released the new hellraiser movie which kind of fits into that category okay and my co yeah. everything that i've seen about it my coworker said it was great and like all of the reviews that i've been seeing say it's great but it's on hulu which is the one streaming service i don't have so i'm gonna like do a tr- three-day trial or whatever just to watch that just movie. watch just to raise some hell okay but yeah there's a lot of good slasher movies that i've realized like Pumpkinhead is an older slasher movie, and I really enjoyed that one. I think that was probably like n- near the top of the slasher from that period of time between like Friday the Thirteenth and uh, Halloween and all those. The eighties had the seventies and eighties had yeah. a lot of slashers. I mean, they're very cheesy, like all of them. But right. that's what makes them fun for me. Well, I mean, Jaws was considered a horror movie at yeah, its time. That's fair. So 
Do you think that now we're just going off on a tangent? Do you think that the slasher genre got bolstered during that time? Because that's when like serial killers, serial man. killers were really on the up and up, if you will. And who was the killer in uh, the seventies, LA? Richard, Richard Ramirez. Ramirez. Yes. Do you think like he was kind of the inspiration between for a lot of that? I mean, I wouldn't doubt it that a lot of those are inspired by people like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy that art just imitates life in almost oh, yeah. every way. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, for us in Wisconsin, ooh, speaking Dahmer, of Dahmer, yeah. yeah, he just got a huge series. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is partially based on Ed Gein. Yeah. So I mean, we've got our own stuff homegrown to us, but. Speaking of that, I finally had the moment where I like isolated people at a party because we were talking there. Someone brought up Dahmer and I was talking about like Ed Gein and stuff mm-hmm. like in addition to it. And all of them were just like, I'm going to just go over there now because I don't, I don't need to hear all were this. Were you wearing your glasses? No. Too? no <laughs> you, you weren't wearing the Dahmer glasses? But they were like, you, you need some new hobbies. I was like, this is what I do for a hobby. I, I researched this for my show. Right. Like you need a hobby. I don't have a hobby. I have a show. Babe, listen. <laughs> right. You are going to sit there and listen to me talk about Dahmer, but that is really well done. Evan Peters and that is... I still haven't watched it. You still haven't watched it? No. It. I'm hesitant. to. I'm still hesitant to watch it. One, I want them to do it right. And two, I have read some things where like they use witness statements from mm. people they never consulted about it. Oh. So it's kind of like... Netflix is just trying to make a bunch of money by using other people's misery. Oh, yeah. Netflix don't give up. Which is kind of shitty. I mean, yeah. I'll, I probably will end up watching it just because I want to see how true to the story they were. Jacob, there's only so many days left of spooky season. I know. but this does, You like, can't just watch this but in everyone, November. What kind, what? Everyone was asking me, like, oh, are you going to cover Jeffrey Dahmer on the show? I'm like, well, we were going to, but now it's just like everyone has done it in the past month. So Netflix is kind of... I don't think they're thinking enough about the small, small, the small to mid market. range <laughs> <laughs> multimedia channels. The small market podcast hosts. Yeah. Like, how are we supposed to cover, like, John Wayne Gacy? Or... How do we keep above the water on this? Oh. Dogs we... episode, baby. Should we tease our cool update that we got? Frick, yeah. So, we have something very cool that we are working on currently. It is related to serial killers and we kind of got a tip for something that i'd never heard of yeah from one of our listeners and so we're we're working with this person on possibly compiling some story notes on someone that is i could not find anything on really so me either i did some digging too once we started talking about it a little bit in preparation for this very interested to have the conversation. Yeah, so we we have some stuff in the works right now. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say anything is concrete yet because n- nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. So I can't say for sure that we'll really have anything going in even by tomorrow. But right, right now we're optimistic that we're going to have something kind of cool that we haven't done on the show before. And I'm very interested to see where it goes. It's ex- it's super exciting. That. Will- <laughs> That was probably one of the most vague things, like just our conversation. It about was. It. Just know that something pretty neat is coming through. Yeah, and I, d- I don't want to like reveal too many details because I do want it to be a surprise if it does happen. But yeah, just know that we may have a lead on someone that's never really been talked about on anything that I could find. And 
hopefully we can get some some good juicy details so we can give them to you guys and kind of crack a case. And everyone subscribe to our YouTube page. Yes, that too. And if you don't, then we won't release the... No, we won't hold it for ransom. No, we won't. <laughs> we won't do that. It's too cool to not release. It's too so. cool. Too cool. Too cool. All right, everyone. After that... 20 minute tangent after our stories that if you stayed to the end thank you for listening all the way so late (laughs) but that is all we got for you guys this week we got two more weeks a spooky season next week we will have another spooky tale for you and then the last week we are still gonna do listener stories and creepypasta and whatever we feel like doing that week it's kind of gonna be a free-for-all but mostly focused on your guys stories so if you got some to send in gems of history podcast at gmail.com Evan, you want to plug our socials and really all of quick? our social media <laughs> on Twitter at gems underscore history, and then on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at gems of history pod. Yeah, and Guest. if you guys haven't seen yet, I'm doing shorts on YouTube and TikTok every Friday. Uh, not shirts, not shorts. shirts, shorts. YouTube shorts, the little minute videos. I'm doing a this day in history on those two platforms i post them on our instagram as well as reels so they're kind of on all our channels and i do those every friday so keep in touch with us there or they've been picking up and doing pretty well lately so i'm I'm excited about where that's gonna go and then hopefully we're gonna be working on some more longer form youtube content to kind of change it up a little bit give you guys some more stuff to watch so we're expanding into different multimedia adventures and venues we're trying it all you know we're just getting out there. I'm trying to video edit, and I'm getting okay at it. <laughs> it is it is very interesting. I do a lot of that for work, and it's very painstaking. So. It is. But that's all we got, guys. We are going to get out of here, and hopefully you guys all have a great week. And in addition to staying polished, make sure you go out there and help others stay polished. <laughs>